1959, John Murray, a Scottish systematic theologian at Westminster Theological Seminary, published the first volume of his commentary on the Book of Romans, one that John Piper would later call the most beautiful commentary ever written. In the more than 60 years since it first appeared, Murray's commentary has changed the way scores of pastors and teachers read and teach the Bible, helping to draw many readers and congregations into deeper communion with their Savior. Now, Westminster Seminary Press has reprinted John Murray's commentary on Romans in a beautiful new hardcover edition updated with a new introduction by Sinclair Ferguson. I'm your host, John Curry, professor of pastoral theology at Westminster. In this podcast, we'll revisit the classic commentary with some of the pastors and teachers it has influenced the most. Along the way, we'll explore how Paul's letter to the Romans and John Murray's commentary on that letter help us to understand, teach, and preach Romans in the present day. I hope you'll join me as we explore together the epistle to the Romans. So talking about those hard questions, let me turn to you, Dave, and ask a little bit about Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. There, Murray gives us, uh, exposits for us, and interprets for us what Paul is saying about the Son of God in his humiliation, exaltation. Talk to us a little bit about not just what Murray says, but what's going on in Romans 1, 1 to 4. Yeah, I actually would like to expand that, if I might, to verses 1 through 7, which really is the primary block of the prologue, as it were, to Romans. And I think, you know, it is quite striking the way in which Murray very clearly says when it is the gospel of the Son that that the text has in view the eternal Son of God. But in verses 3 and 4, he actually builds out the implications, uh, I'm sorry, builds out the nature of Christ's transition from one state to another, from his state of humiliation to his state of exaltation. And those are temporal categories in relation to, with respect to, his human nature. And what that becomes really important for the whole book because the, the whole point of that Christological affirmation is its soteriological implication. And it is necessary for Christ to suffer and to be exalted for our salvation to be secured. And in our union with him, we move in that transition from that humiliation to exaltation in and with him. And and so that for Paul is not only just a Christological assertion, even as you look at Romans 1, 1 through 7, it moves to soteriology by way of pneumatology. So the salvation, the ministry of the Spirit, and actually unto missiology, because his view is the extension of the gospel to the nations under the headship of the one Son of God who has become Son of God in power. Now, Murray is very careful to affirm Jesus does not become the Son of God at his resurrection, but he does become the Son of God in power 
at his resurrection. And that particular distinction is critical because in the way in which Paul frames the very nature of history of moving under from the curse of the law to the freedom that Christ brings us, it was necessary for him to move from that state of being under curse to where his death puts to death death itself and crushes the power of sin itself and the guilt of sin itself. And he does that by virtue of his faithfulness in that process from one state to the next state. So Murray, just to be clear, he is fully affirming the eternal sonship of Christ. But he looks at Romans 1, 3, and 4 and says, yes, that is assumed here, but what Paul is doing here is actually speaking about the salvifically necessary transition from him being born of, the, of David, of the seed of David, temporally, and then being raised from the dead and being declared appointed son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness at his resurrection. And that transition and that actually attainment is critical to the gospel itself. There is no gospel without it. And so that's it's in, in shorthand what I think uh, Murray is trying to capture, and I, I think he's faithfully representing what Paul's trying to capture. Yeah, that's there. great. Uh, you, you alluded to it, uh, the implications for soteriology um, could you talk just a little bit about that interpretation pastorally? What difference does that make? Or what difference does that make in how you preach the first few verses, that little uh, 1 to 7 and Romans 1? What difference yeah, does it make? Well, there's probably a thousand different ways we could go with that, with that answer. I think one of the things is I do believe in broader evangelicalism. We still tend to have a bit of a docetic view of Christ where they, we really believe is his deity, but we minimize his humanity. And I think that the scriptures make clear that we must fully have both in order for Christ to be our Savior. And so this transition and his actual historical temptations vis-a-vis -vis Luke 4 and Matthew 4 are not just exemplars for us, but were necessary for Christ to prove himself the faithful son. And I think for us to recognize the Christ that is our Savior and Lord is the one who has successfully walked in a pathway of obedience where he did the will of his father, fulfilled that perfectly, bore the curse of our sin and bore the burden and guilt of our sin, actually historically and personally as the God-man, that is, makes salvation something that is not just an abstraction, but we have a personal Christ who has personally suffered and personally attained this resurrection glory that is our possession. That's astounding. Yeah. Yeah, the exegesis matters uh, to get to that conclusion, doesn't it? Yeah. And you know, it's interesting in this too. Um, Dave, you can correct me here, but, I, you know, here's Murray who was at, who was at Princeton in the 1920s um, as a student. So he, he would have read Hodge. Yep. And Hodge's view of this would be, you know, what has come to be a sort of one of the standard views is that this, that Romans is just talking about the human nature and the divine nature mm -hmm. of Christ. You've got according to the flesh, according to the spirit. Those are systematic theological categories and it, and it fits pretty neatly in there. Mm -hmm. When Murray writes his commentary, uh, who's he reading on this mm -hmm. particular passage? Gerhardus Voss. Gerhardus Voss. So he's, so he's, he's moving self-consciously away from, from what Hodge was doing. And this is nothing against Hodge's commentary on 
Romans is a fine one, but but Murray knows mm-hmm. he's he's weighed the he's weighed the two, and he knows exegetically that if you're gonna if you're gonna think about what Christ is doing in the way Paul's thinking here, there's got to be this historical redemptive um, trajectory and organic movement of humiliation, exaltation mm-hmm. in the person of Christ which has to do with everything that he accomplished and not just categories of, yes, he's divine, yes, he's human. Correct. Nothing against those categories. But that's not what Paul's concerned about here. And that's back to your question, um, how does this preach? This is the way that it preaches. It's yeah. the life of the Lord Jesus, mm-hmm. the Christ, the Messiah, who came and died and was raised. No, that's good, Scott. And I think, <clears throat> I think Murray is the, unless I'm mistaken here, I might be corrected. I think Murray is the first commentator on Romans to take Voss's proposal and bring it into a commentary that proved to be a, a widely received, well-received commentary. There have been examples of it since then, but you see this, this line, as it were, of Voss's initial proposals, and I think while there is some precedent, they are largely Voss's proposals in Pauline eschatology. Then you have Murray doing his Romans commentary. Well, he, he puts it in a commentary in the first commentator form of it. Then Dr. Gaffin comes along, and in his uh, work on Paul and the structure of the application of redemption, he takes Voss and Murray even further in a even more comprehensive uh, argument to make the case along these lines. But I think Murray would be the first one to put this in a Romans commentary. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and I even, if I might just add one more thing, John, that, that language of Christ becoming Son of God in power, Murray will speak of that as his installment or his yeah. installation. Right. Um, he also uses the language of investiture. Right. That, that, so to be clear, and I just, I don't want this to be lost on our hearers, Murray fully affirms the eternal sonship of Christ <laughs> and actually does so in this commentary on this first chapter of Romans. Yeah. <laughs> But I think it is critical, I think Scott put it well, that's not what Paul is concerned about in verses 3 and 4 as it is building out to verse 7 and frankly setting the whole stage for Paul's argument in the rest of the book. Yeah, great, great, great clarification. Scott, let's stick with Romans 1 for a little bit and ask you to talk to us about Romans 1.18 and following. Give us a little sketch of what Romans 1.18 uh, to the end of the chapter is doing, what it looks like, and then what does it mean for Christian theology and the Christian's endeavor in apologetics. What are the implications of Romans 1.18 and after that for those endeavors? Yeah, it's uh, a huge um, section in, in this um, epistle. It actually runs into chapter 3, doesn't it? Around verse 20, I think, where what Paul's trying to do. So <clears throat> Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. That's going to be the theme after he's developed what we've just talked about. I'm not ashamed of that gospel. Um, and then one uh, seventeen, the righteousness of God revealed. That was a uh, uh, fascinating passage when we think about the Reformation. Uh, justification by faith, that has something to do with, with Romans, of course. But righteousness revealed can't have its full punch, biblically speaking, until we recognize wrath revealed. So, so Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, moves from righteousness, sets that aside. He'll pick it up again in chapter 3. And, and wants, wants us to know, the Lord wants us to know, Paul wants us to know through Romans, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What's Paul's point? Paul's point 
<clears throat> is he's thinking now, Paul's thinking now about Genesis 1 to 3. Here's man, the image of God, but the fall has happened. So what are we like now, given image of God and given the fall? What we're like is we are those who know God, Romans 1.21, uh, those who know God and at the same time by virtue of our sin suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. Um, and so when, when, when Murray's talking about the wrath of God, I have this quote. It's one of my favorite in Murray uh, in the commentary. He says, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Mm. Again, he's thinking biblically and exegetically and not so much in terms of what the tradition has done with that. Uh, and I think, he's, I think he's got it right. So Paul wants <clears throat> readers to recognize that sin has provoked something with respect to God. There's something going on in God's activity because of sin being replete throughout humanity. And, and it has to do with the fact that God who makes man in his image ensures that those who are in his image will know the one in whose image they are. Mm -hmm. And so what we're meant to do as creatures made in God's image is we're meant to give God thanks and give him honor. We won't do that because we hold down the knowledge. And in holding down the knowledge, we exchange, verse 23, the truth of God for a lie. And we worship and serve, verse 25, the creature rather than the creator. Now, what, what that means for us, I think it means a number of things for us, but at least uh, apologetically, we, we recognize that when we're defending the Christian faith, we're never going to someone who doesn't know the God of whom we speak. Uh, I don't think we necessarily need to make known what we know from Romans 1. We need to know that in order to exegete the people to whom we speak. This is someone made in the image of God and therefore who knows the true and triune God truly, knows God truly. And in knowing God truly, what are they doing? They're spending their lives, every moment of their lives, holding down the bombardment. Murray's great on this. The dynamic of God's revelation. This is not like he has a ball of revelation. He sets it in creation. He's dynamically, by virtue of his presence, revealing himself through all of the things that are made, both internally, Romans 2, and externally, all, mm -hmm. all the things that are made, so that God is bombarding every one of his creatures made in his image with himself, knowledge of who he is. And so we have to keep holding it down, keep holding it down. We can't do it completely. So what we do is we create idols. Calvin's great phrase, we're, our hearts are idol factories. We just produce idols uh, and, and images and other things. And, and, and therefore, everyone has something or some things that they worship. Um, and that's what suppression of the truth is. Now, Paul's point, there's much more to be said on that, but What's Paul's point in verse 18? The wrath of God is revealed. How is the wrath then revealed? Given knowledge of the truth, suppression of the truth. It's revealed, verses 24, 26, and 28, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them. In other words, the implication clear is that God is restraining our sinfulness so that we're not as sinful as we could be. And that's not because there's good in us. It's because God is good and He restrains that. And there are times in the lives of individuals when God will say to them, in effect, okay, if you want your sin, I'm going to give you your sin in spades. I'm going to lift the restraints, and you're going to descend into the depravity that you so desire. 
here's here's Murray here's Murray on 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 this when when Paul so Paul uses the example the first example of homosexuality it's not the only one he's got but it's the it's the prime one in terms of the image that he gives Murray says this the implication is that however grievous is fornication or adultery the desecration involved in homosexuality is on a lower plane of degeneracy it is unnatural and therefore evinces a perversion more basic. I mean, that's Murray's exegesis of what does Paul mean when he says this is against nature? It means that God's given people over. So not only is someone who's in Adam just lusting, someone is lusting now after someone of the same sex, which reverses the creation order. He's thinking again about Genesis 2. God created man, male and female. If God's going to remove his restraints, you're going to actually start thinking it's okay to have sexual desires for someone of the same gender. And that's, here's what uh, Scripture says, here's what Murray says, that evidences God's wrath. Mm. I'm going to give you your sin, I'm going to give it to you Mm. in spades. Now, he doesn't just stop there, Paul goes on to say, you know, people in this condition, when God evidences His wrath, they're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, malice, etc. And so he has a list of sins that go on there. And then at the end of it, Romans 132, um, Paul sort of concludes in a way what he's what he's spoken about. And, and he and he lets us know that even though even though we know what he what he calls the ordinance or the require the righteous requirements of God, even though we know those things, uh, what do we do? We not only do them, and by the way, he says we know that 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 um, that we're worthy of death because we've breached God's law. We know that by natural revelation. We know that we're, that we deserve to die. God makes sure that we know that. But not only do we continue to do those things, but Paul says we give hearty approval to those who practice them. Here's Murray's comment on that. To put it bluntly, we are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in the doing of those things that we know have their issue. Mm. In damnation. Now that's that's what we are all like apart from Christ. This is the condition, the human condition of each and every person made in the image of God who will not come to Christ, who will not bow the knee to Christ. And, th- and that's what that's what Paul wants us to know. Murray's exposition of that, moving through verse by verse, is just mm. excellent. It's the best mm. best I've read, Romans one. Mm. So uh, if you could sum up when it comes to apologetics. What does that tell us? How does that affect our methodology, our approach? Yeah, well, it tells us that everyone that we that we speak to, everyone we preach to, everyone we evangelize, everyone we defend the faith with, that's a person who knows the true God truly. And so what we're wanting to do in our defense of Christianity, as in our evangelism and preaching, is we're wanting to reach in, metaphorically, to that knowledge of God and try as best we can persuasively to pull that out of them so that they might see that, as a matter of fact, this is there in the first place. It's already there. God's already been there before we approach them. So this is why I've been attracted uh, for my adult life to Van Til's uh, apologetic, because it comes from biblical material. It's not something that was invented in the philosophy classroom. It was something that came right out of Scripture. So when we're doing our apologetics, we're sitting under Scripture and what it says about what we are like in our sins, and therefore we're defending the faith according to what God's truth actually says and not according to some 
other criterion that we might want to invent of rationality or evidences or whatever. So our foundation always has to be the Word of God. If we see people through the spectacles of Scripture, to use Calvin's metaphor, then we exegete what's happening in our defense of the faith according to what, first of all, what Paul has said, and then we listen to what they say in light of what Paul has said, because what Paul has said, what Scripture says, is the truth of the matter. And then we listen to all that they say, but we do that um, trying to be discerning by virtue of what Scripture has told us about these people. So it's an apologetic method that has to be, has to have its roots in Scripture. That's a great summary. Yeah, and you know, Scott, it does seem to me that there continues to be a notion of affirming people's awareness of some deity out there. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you've got a point of contact because they've got this sense of godness, as it were. But you've been pretty clear here that that that's not what Romans 1 is talking about. What are the implications for what that more broadly embraced paradigm is, yeah, people have an awareness of a God, but not the triune God. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's so helpful the way um, uh, Paul puts it, and Murray draws this out very well, that, that when Paul's, Paul says, verse 18, they suppress the truth, now he's got two things he's going to explain. What is suppression and what is truth? He gets mm-hmm. to, the, for, to the last one first and then to the second one. Um, uh, than to suppression. So when he's talking about truth, that which is known about God is evident within them. How is it evident? Because God made it evident to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, his invisible attributes, verse 20, uh, his eternal power, his divine nature. And, and Charles Hodge says in his commentary on Romans that, that uh, when Paul wants to make a list, he makes a list. When he doesn't make a list and gives categories, he, he, mean, he means to be inclusive. And, and Hodge says um, that Paul's including here, quote, all the divine perfection. So the point mm-hmm. Paul's making is this is not some generic sense of some kind of something out there, a higher power or some, oh, I, you know, there's something transcendent. This is true knowledge of the true God mm-hmm. in that God demonstrates, evidences his character throughout all that he's made. So there's there's no point, Calvin says, the minute you open your eyes, you're compelled to see him. Yeah. There's no point at which a person who is self-conscious is not at the same time God-conscious. God conscious. Yeah. And it's God-consciousness of the true God. Yeah. And that's in there. Right. And and sometimes it comes out. It comes out in, in false religions. That's why we have Hinduism. That's why we have Islam. That's why we have all the false religions, Mormonism. Uh, and it comes out in people's lives day to day. When you, you when you talk to them, you find out what it is they've latched themselves onto, what they decide to worship, because they know the true God, but they don't want Him because they know if they have Him, they have to bow their knee, and they won't do that. Yeah. Sin won't, won't let them do that. Yeah, that's massive implications for evangelism, preaching, Huge. counseling, and who are you speaking to? What do they know? And what are you trying to draw them to and draw out of them? Yeah, it's a great, great, great explanation. And you know, Scott, to, re- to return to the revelation of the wrath of God against sin, and you mentioned the relevance here of the homosexual sin in view in Romans 1. Um, For obvious reasons, there's been a whole lot of interest in Romans 1, homosexuality, its relationship to the gospel and the character of God in Western culture now for a number of years. Uh, One of the most helpful things I've read matches up very well with what you're noting Murray is doing. by an Anglican theologian, Christopher Seitz, who is dealing with the homosexuality problem and providing a real compelling biblical critique of homosexuality by way of Romans 1. And he makes a really compelling case that Paul in Romans 1 actually has specifically God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in view when Paul refers to the revelation 
from the heavenlies of the wrath of God against such sin. The raining down of the so-called fire and brimstone was a decisive and unassailable demonstration of God's holy judgment of those kinds of sins in such a way that his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah were to function as an enduring witness to the truth that the holy God judges such sins. Mm -hmm. Not to take away the general reality of the revelation of God's wrath in terms of his mm -hmm. character, but that it also had this particular concrete covenant historical right, and right. Torah mm -hmm. embedded form, which not only Israel knew, but the story got out mm -hmm. of what God has done to sin of that sort. Um, so it gives us an in, a, a window into Paul who knows his Torah um, and is appealing to Genesis 1 through 3 for sure and the reality of the fall and what, it, what we have become as sinners, but is uh, probably at least reading on to see what many Jews recognized was the enduring illustration of the truth he brings now to a church of Jews and Gentiles. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mark, let's stick with you. Go. Can I just do one more thing? Sure. Um, when, when we recognize, so this goes to the relevance. I was talking to someone yesterday, so, you know, how, how, do you, how do you make the, how's the gospel made relevant to people in our culture? And, and one of the things I think we have to recognize is relevance is not determined by the people in our culture. Right. Um, if, if the question means, how do you satisfy what that person says is relevant to them, then you might have to say, well, that can't be my first priority. And so part of what, what we recognize is that when people know the true God truly, His invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature, they already have a sense of transcendence embedded in their hearts. Mm -hmm. The most relevant thing you can give to them is God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's mm -hmm. nothing more relevant than that. So if, if someone says that's not that's not my world, that's not relevant to me, we have to understand that to be suppression of the truth and unrighteousness and mm. not the truth of the matter in the first place. This has a lot to do with how we think about worship. Yeah. If your worship is going to be relevant by giving to people who come into your church the same junk they're getting on the outside of their church so you make it less junky and put it into your church, that's not the way to think about relevance. Relevance is a sense of transcendence when you walk in and know God is present here. And we need to show that in our worship, that's the most relevant thing you can do. Yeah. John, if I might also add, I think what Scott has just articulated also makes abundantly clear the narrow focused mission that Christ has given his church. There is a message of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications for people to place their trust in him. The message of the gospel is not and, so, and the task of mission is not just kind of whatever I want to do, the things that I'm most interested in. There is a particular mission that is given the church. And Paul argues for that in this entire book, that this, this message of which Scott has just been describing is the only message that the church is to steward in proclaiming Jesus to the nations. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, great application.